This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Hello and welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Chuck Jorgensen, Chief Scientist for the Neuroengineering Lab at NASA Ames Research Center in Moffett Field, California. He's done research in subvocal speech technology, and he is currently working with bioelectrical interfacing in the detection of human emotion. Chuck, thanks for being with us. First, with bioelectrical interfacing, what kinds of applications are possible? The typical kinds of problems that we were interested in was that if you put someone in a constrained suit, like a space suit, or um, in the case of someone like firefighters or um, hazmat suits, the pressurization that's occurring from the breathing apparatus, as well as the uh, limitations on finger movement, for example, in a, in a pressurized suit, uh, make doing tasks like typing or joy, small joystick control uh, very difficult to do. So, or, or actually dealing with, say, an external robotic device that you might want to control as an assistant. So, we began to get interested in asking several questions, which was, um, could we intercept the neurological signals prior to actually initiating a full movement and utilize those signals um, in ways that would send commands to devices? The first work that we did, and this was probably about six years ago, was to take a look at the um, electromyographic signals of the arm. And those, those are the electromyographical signals are the surface measurements of uh, muscle innervation that's occurring down an arm, like when you clench your fist, mm-hmm. the electrical signals cause the muscles to contract, and there's a uh, basically electrical signal activity that can be picked up with external sensors. And the magnitudes of those and the timing of those and how they behave can be intercepted, uh, recorded, and turned into patterns that can be used to send to the machine. So what we looked at first was could we intercept those neural commands um, without requiring something like a pilot's joystick for an airplane. Uh, The general idea here would be you would reach into the air, you grab an imaginary joystick, and you would fly the plane simply by clenching your fist and turning your wrist in different directions as though you were uh, mechanically touching uh, real hardware. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that was yes, and we did it. And uh, we demonstrated it to uh, Administrator Golden a number of years ago uh, by landing a uh, full Class 4 simulator uh, at San Francisco Airport um, by uh, actually reaching in the air and and, uh, flying the plane. And there's some interesting side stories on that, but but that's the general technology. The, um, The next question that arose then was if we could handle those fairly coarse muscles for something like grabbing a joystick, um, could we move it further? And so the question then became, can we intercept these electromyographic signals and type without a keyboard? So uh, the answer to that was also yes. And we, we demonstrated that uh, we could type a numeric keyboard uh, by picking up the commands of the individual fingers, but picking the, the information up actually off the outside of the arm the electromyographic signals on the arm before they got to the hand. Now, that was important because in certain kinds of tasks, you might want to have gloves on or the hand might impact uh, a surface, uh, both for an astronaut or something, say, in in a combat situation where the hand would take impact 
wanted to pick up the signals before they got to the hand. And that finally led now to what you originally asked me about this morning, which was subvocal speech. If we said, well, if we can get signals that tiny on the arm, um, what about the tiny signals that are sent to the tongue and the larynx and the voice box? Can we pick those up? Uh, the implication being that we might be able to understand what somebody was going to say, even if they didn't say it out loud. And the answer to that, again, was yes. And so um, we started developing a technology which let us um, have someone do the equivalent of whisper, or if, and if they wanted to actually only uh, move the mouth or simulate the articulation of words without making any audible sound at all, and uh, pick that pick that speech up. We demonstrated it for uh, a number of situations. We demonstrated it in a pressurized uh, fire suit. We demonstrated it in uh, diving equipment, pressurized underwater diving equipment. Um, these are both environments that would be analogous to a spacesuit, where you have a lot of aspirator hiss, or you have uh, uh, background noise. And so one of the big interests in subvocal speech was not only the ability to communicate silently, but also to communicate in the presence of extreme noise. Um, examples of that would be someone at an airport, for example, near uh, large jet engines, where uh, normally you would be able to talk in a cell phone or a communicator, um, and you could pick it up either auditorily like with a traditional microphone, but if that was overwhelmed with a sudden noise, uh, you'd be able to pick it up uh, through the actuation of these subvocal signals. How limited is the vocabulary there? What kinds of what are the limitations of what you can communicate? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the the original work that we were doing had a fairly limited vocabulary because the type of information we could extract from surface signals of the muscles without any kind of invasive behavior uh, had us starting initially with very small numbers of, of words. Um, 10, 15 words, for example, or things like uh, police 10 codes. Um, later, we began to take a look not at just recognizing whole words, which was the way we originally started out, like left, right, forward, backward, um, words that would control the robot platform, for example. Uh, but we began to wonder, can we pick up the vowels and consonants, the building blocks of many words? And so there was some preliminary work done on that, and the answer was yes, we can pick up uh, some of those vowels and consonants, uh, but not all of them, because not everything that you're doing with the muscles reflects what goes on with speech. An example of that would be what they call the plosives, which are the uh, popping types of sounds that you make by closing your lips and pressurizing your mouth, so that would be Peter, Paul, pick the peppers, etc. type stuff. Mm -hmm. Those kind of plosive noises are not, not represented. Um, there was some follow-on work where uh, we uh, did some work also with Carnegie Mellon and a, and a young doctoral student there, uh, connecting it to a classical speech recognition engine, except the front end of it was now a subvocal pickup. Uh, I believe that work, and I'd have to, to have the exact numbers in front of me, but I believe that work got up into the uh, hundreds to possibly uh, thousand to two thousand word recognition capability. Wow. Uh, but that was that was probably the most advanced work uh, using that specific approach to subvocal speech. And where are we at now? Is it in use currently, or is it still 
Where do you uh, where do you see it right now? Well, what happened is the NASA budget for that work was terminated, um, uh, uh, partly to do with the termination of the broader program for the extension of human senses. But the the idea was has been picked up worldwide. There's a very large group in Germany uh, working on it now, and there were um, uh, a number of worldwide activities. I'm still getting calls from different people. Um, uh, around the world that are pursuing it in their in their laboratory. Um, our ultimate goal on this, and I, I still think there's work that could be done, was to develop a silent cell phone so that we would be uh, capable of communicating either auditorily or silently on a cell phone using the same type of technology. What does it look like, and is it uh, kind of a user-friendly uh, uh, technology? Um, that it's mixed. Um, it's easier to implement with the coarser muscle movements, like the, the uh, for example, the control stick area of that technology is very straightforward, and that can be a sleeve that's, that's slid over your arm. Um, something like subvocal speech requires picking up signals on different areas around the mouth and the larynx. And although I imagine that uh, a qualified Italian designer could make it look cool, uh, the reality of it is that you have to still inflate sensors in different areas of the face to pick it up. And we were originally doing our work with the classical type of wet electrode sensors that you would see if you want to have an electrocardiogram in the doctor's office. Um, they, they're, they're bulky, they're patchy. Uh, we later did work on um, dry electrodes, which didn't require that moisture, and then the most advanced work currently out there that, that we had also had initiated was uh, capacitive sensors, which picked up the uh, tiny electromagnetic fields without requiring direct contact with the skin. Uh, these sensors were down, brought down, uh, while it was still NASA work, to the level of about the size of a dime, and uh, it, they've continued to shrink since then. And uh, that was an important part of the, of the puzzle. We needed to both um, have the sensor technology to collect the signals in a non-obtrusive way, and then the processing algorithms to do something with it. And so we focused more on the processing algorithms. Um, later work in the Department of Defense has advanced the sensor side of it quite heavily, and they, in fact, have entire helmets that have been um, uh, populated with uh, microsensors. Uh, so the components are there, but so far I would say it, it certainly wouldn't be a, uh, a drop it on. There has to be individual training and uh, customization. What were your biggest technical challenges when designing this type of sensor technology? Um, the sensor technology? Uh, the sensor technology itself was not designed at NASA. We subcontracted it. Um, it was based on, a, on an earlier technology that uh, initially was developed by IBM um, called SQUID, which I believe is stood for sub, something like sub-quantum interference detection. That patent was picked up by uh, uh, a company in uh, Southern California, uh, Quasar Corporation, that uh, solved a number of the processes that uh, IBM was not able to solve. They were a British company. And uh, they've advanced that technology uh, substantially, as well as several other people who have uh, begun to do the same thing with nanosensors in uh, gaming systems.
So you'll see a lot of the children's gaming systems now are beginning to get pretty sophisticated about what they can pick up in terms of the same kinds of signals. What is your day-to-day uh, -day work? What are you working on currently? Where do you work out of? What's a typical day for you? I'm a chief scientist at uh, NASA Ames, and I started what was uh, now referred to as the Neuroengineering Laboratory. Um, my current projects are actually focused in a slightly different area. Um, they're taking a look at the detection of human emotions. Uh, we're looking at a number of things uh, of extracting the human emotional responses from various characteristics of the speech signal, uh, particularly the characteristics called prosody. So we've been uh, looking at the capability, for example, of using prosody as a way of um, detecting fatigue in pilot communications or air traffic controller communication. Uh, also, the detection of emotion states, uh, fear, anger, happiness, um, uh, by analyzing uh, typical microphone acoustic signals and determining what the emotional state of the individual is. Uh, we've also been looking at the automation of various systems that are, are uh, looking at the overall human behavior. Things like pupil dilation, for example, eye tracking, um, other areas that all reflect emotional states. Sure. How do you respond to someone who might be skeptical saying, you know, that uh, a machine couldn't possibly detect emotion as well as, uh, as a human? Um, it's certainly not at that state, but the, the interesting thing is that what we've observed where we, for example, had um, actors uh, attempting to, to show different emotions and have the uh, machine detected is that the human, human raters of what emotion was being expressed don't agree at much higher percentage than what some of our machine uh, evaluations are. So the humans themselves can't always agree on what emotion is being expressed. The person can say, I'm, I'm trying to express a happy emotion, but the observer can be confused, uh, whether they're grimacing sometimes or whether they're laughing. or uh, it, It's surprising. So it's hard to establish what truth is uh, when someone says, how well is the machine doing and how well is the person doing. Mm -hmm. What would be the easiest application for this type of technology? Um, within NASA or commercially? Uh, either one, both, actually. Um, well, within NASA... Uh, what, I, what I'm currently uh, most interested in trying to do would be something that would help in the identification of pilot fatigue, mm -hmm. um, where uh, pilots may, in fact, be reaching fatigue states and not be consciously aware of it themselves, but it begins to show up in um, various characteristics of their performance in their voice or in their uh, emotional or neurological response. What are your uh, biggest challenges there? Is your work just constantly calibrating and making sure that uh, and perfecting that type of technology? No, I mean, this is parts of this are fairly cutting edge. There, there was a lot of stuff done a few years ago that's often confused with what we're looking at called voice stress analysis, mm -hmm. uh, which you see on television. They're saying it's somebody lying or whatever because their voice stress is there. And actually, the, the scientific studies have pretty well proven that that does not work, that it's a bogus approach, and it's based on certain assumptions of, of muscle tensions that really aren't there. Um, what we're looking at is a little bit different. We're actually looking at the full spectral response of, of um, the vocal system, not a specific frequency. 
and uh, across many variables. For example, uh, in the current work, we're looking at over 988 variables extracted from just the human voice alone. And the challenges there are, are formidable in determining uh, which variables are actually the drivers for the different emotions, um, how they have to be combined mathematically into different models. And this is, we have the pattern recognition questions. Um, and we're actually looking at some other aspects of it as well, which is how to turn those patterns into visual images. Um, we're attempting to, to create literally, it's literally a little bit like having all those variables draw a picture. And the picture can be recognized as emotion anger or emotion happiness or something else. But actually um, having the data themselves tell you the state of the system. And, and this has applications beyond just emotions. This sure. can be used for system health monitoring, for example. Wow, this is very, very interesting stuff. Uh, what is, um, what would you say is your favorite part of the job? Um, definitely trying to do something that's cutting edge um, as far as, and what's most interest to me, my background is, in, is sort of a weird combination, but it's called mathematical psychology. And what's interesting to me is to try to take the soft sciences of psychology and social science and overlay a, uh, a hard engineering uh, mathematics and basis for it. And uh, I find that a very fascinating combination because uh, one side of it is, is rather intuitive uh, and the other side has to be very hard-nosed and analytical. And where the two meet uh, makes for some interesting research challenges. Sure. And do you see this this uh, field growing? And do you see a lot more support for these types of technologies? Uh, yeah, actually I do um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one of them is that uh, I'll give a, a non-NASA non example, but there, it actually it holds in many cases. Uh, the Department of Defense, for example, is, is quite interested now in trying to see whether or not American technology can deal with problems that are associated with uh, social understanding of groups, for example, how do groups form, um, how do you identify who, who the leader of a group is um, based on a, a series of sociological cues and somehow quantify that and understand the underlying structure of the network. Uh, similarly, uh, the, there, there's a range of social sciences, of small group theory, network theory, um, how cognitive learning can be improved to rapidly absorb new languages. Uh, these are all aspects of things that are, that are associated with teaching and learning. But um, to have a, the next step or the next advancement of these requires moving into something that really hasn't occurred before, which is this translation of the soft sciences into the hard sciences.